Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm speaking from the library in uh, Tisarana. It's nice to be with you in this rather weird way. We thought we'd start with some chanting, and the chanting we've been doing on these Zoom meetings is the Itipi So chant. Many of you know it, and for those of you who don't know it, it's a good one to learn. And it's a chant which reflects on the qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha in the Pali. And it's used for various rituals. It's used especially for circumambulation. So if ever you go to Bodhgaya, uh, and you're doing circumambulation around the main shrine, the main jadi, that's the chant that the Theravadan Buddhists would be doing. The Japanese would do something else, Tibetan something else. So we'll do that chant and offer our blessings before we uh, do the meditation. Then in the meditation, I'll give a little bit of instruction, and then we'll sit quietly for 10 minutes, and then I'll be able to offer a Dhamma talk. So um, please just listen quietly, or join in the chanting. You're all muted, but you can certainly join in from your own homes. Yitipi so bhagavaham samma samputo vecha sarana sampano sugato loka vidu anusaro purisa dhamma sarati sata deva manusana goto bhagavati savaka Bhagavato Sawakatango, would 
So the knowing or the awareness is the same, and the object is changing. The important thing is just to know that you know. So you know one in-breath, and you know one out-breath, So let's just sit quietly for the 10 minutes or so.
We will now formally request for a Dhamma talk. Rama Jaloka Dipati Sampati Katanjalian Diwarangaya Jata Santi Dasata Araja Kajatika Desetudava Anukam Pimampaja Namuatasa, Pakawato, Arahato, Sama, Samputasa, Namo Tasa, Pakawato, Arahato, Sama, Sambutasa, Namo Tasa, Pakawato, Arahato, Sama, Samputasa, Bhutan, Dhammang, Sankam, Namasan. Good evening again and or good morning, depending what part of the planet you're on. Anyway, nice to be with you. Perhaps a little bit of news from the monastery. You might be interested what's going on here. Well, the most exciting thing, but rather unfortunate, is one of our monks uh, broke his ankle, which is a, uh, not good, but he got a cast today. So he has to be immobile for, or he has to lay in bed for two weeks as much as possible. Um, he's had ankle problems for quite a long time, so it's not surprising. That's the Venerable Amar Siri, who some of you see, he answers the emails, he's my secretary, and he also does a lot of very good things, the accounts at the monastery, so we wish him speedy recovery. He's actually with me uh, in the corner, but he's sitting on a chair, so he's a bit embarrassed. Um, so I've left him in the corner of the room, not because he's naughty, but because <laughs> He's embarrassed of being on a chair. He's a very dutiful monk. And then the other monk with me is Venerable Vipassi. He's uh, on the uh, technical side. And the rest of us are good. We're healthy. No problem. And the monastery is very, uh, very interesting just now because um, now all the mammals and birds are giving birth to their young ones. So we have twice as many squirrels running around and twice as many chipmunks and twice as many birds. So it's uh, very, 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 very alive with all kinds of interesting wildlife. And the most interesting was about what, three days ago, four days ago, we were looking out to the neighbor's field and there was a black bear. And a black, black bear with uh, probably a yearling, so one of its youngsters. Uh, and we were downwind, so it couldn't, and black bears have bad eyesight, so they couldn't smell us, they could not smell and they couldn't hear us. So we were able to watch them with our binoculars for a whole half hour. And that's, uh, I've, I've lived here for many years, but I, others have seen the bears, but I've never seen it. So it's quite exciting for me. So the black bear is, uh, it's not dangerous, it's a very shy animal, but it is beautiful. Uh, but it weighs maybe a big female bear, maybe 500 pounds. So you don't want to get between the baby and mom because that won't be good. In any case, it's a, it's a really a beautiful time of year. Um, so I'll, I'll, 
carry on and, and give a discourse, and I'll, I'll use the I'll use a question that came to us. But if I just may um, do a preamble on on what I'm going to say is that I, I assume that the listeners that you have a fairly a, a good knowledge of Theravada Buddhism, so I won't be speaking to beginners. Um, so if you don't have a good working knowledge of the concepts of Theravada Buddhism, some study would be excellent, a good idea. Many good books, and uh, to understand the terminology I use or the ideas, sometimes people, you know, they get a bit lost because they don't know the context and how it might work. So, but I don't want to just speak to beginners all the time, and I'm not an academic, so I don't want to teach the, um, the, the kind of basics that one needs for the practice. And then uh, I also assume that everyone has a commitment to sila or to morality, that we're committed to nonviolence and to honesty and to caring for ourselves and the planet and to truthfulness and sobriety and fidelity and all those good things. So those two, uh, commitment to, uh, to a good life, both a moral life and a socially conscious life, a socially engaged life where we're expressing generosity, and an understanding of the teaching. Those, I assume, that all of us are on board for that, which is a lot. If, that, if all of humanity was just doing that, we'd be doing very, very well. Um, so if I could go to the question, read the question, and then see what comes from, the, from me for an answer. Last week, you highlighted the role of doubt and confidence in our practice. And you talked about how, over the years, you've been using Ajahn Chah's teachings on uncertainty and the uncreated as the backbone to your practice. Can you explain what is uncertainty and how you use uncertainty to lead your practice? So once again, just a question. Last week, you highlighted the role of doubt and confidence in our practice. And you talked about how, over the years, You've been using Ajahn Chah's teachings on uncertainty and the uncreated as the backbone for your practice. Can you explain what is uncertainty and how you use uncertainty to lead your practice? So the word in the Pali that we're thinking about is anicca, change, and the, the way Ajahn Chah phrased it was maine, which can be, I think, translated as uncertainty or not sure. So there's many ways to look at uh, change. Now, uncertainty in a, in a functional sense, um, if you're, like, we have car insurance, we have fire insurance, we have li uh, personal liability insurance, so all of, and when I travel, I have travel insurance. So, um, I deal with the uncertainty by actually addressing it, by trying to be certain. And then to not have fire insurance would be remiss of me. If the buildings burned down and we hadn't insured them, then all that, all the dana that lay people had, been, had given us would be just wasted. So uncertainty is a natural part of life, and part of being human is to try to make things secure. Otherwise... Um, it wouldn't make any sense. So we do our best for security. So far, if, our, if I, like with Amir Siri, then about Siri, he's got a, a really bad ankle, and we say, go to the doctor, get an x-ray, make sure. Oh, it'll be all right. No, make sure. Uncertainty. Go to the doctor, check it off. Oh, it's, it's cracked. 
So, on a worldly sense, we deal with uncertainty that way. And if we didn't, we'd be foolish. It'd be really silly uh, to not work that way. Um, but even having done that, having done all like due diligence, life's still uncertain. You may get fire insurance, and the buildings may burn down, and the insurance company might renege on their payments. It's unsure. It's my net. It's uncertain. Now, if you just thought about uncertainty as a possibility, you'd become very, very uh, paranoid and anxious. Like, oh, it's uncertain. It's terrible. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? But that's worry. That's just worrying with a sense of self into the future that something terrible might happen. And it might. <laughs> it might happen the next moment. So that's not, obviously, that's not what Ajahn Chah meant, is to worry. But I think what's important in, 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 in the teachings of the fourth monks, or I, I think from the text, uh, that you realize that the, the texts and the, and the teachings that we get from practitioners, they're meant for reflection uh, rather than some kind of a position, some kind of a dogmatic position. So you could say Buddhists believe in change. Well, everyone believes in change. Uh, that's, nothing, that's nothing special. But the act of reflection is taking the teaching and then bringing the perception that the Buddha is asking us to perceive into the present moment. So the way I like to think of right understanding in a Noble Eightfold Path, you have right understanding which is intellectual right understanding. So you study the text, you look at the um, Eightfold Path, at the Four Noble Truths, Dependent Origination, Anicca Dukkanatha, all the different uh, ways that the Buddha talked about the human experience and how to be peaceful or how to be free in the human experience. So that's intellectual right understanding. Another way to look at right understanding is that when, when I know that I know, when I know that I'm sitting here and I'm feeling this way, then I also understand. And this is an experiential understanding or existential understanding rather than just an idea, right? Just a kind of concept that, that's in my mind, a Buddhist concept of anicca. Now, if within this experiential right understanding or awareness, because awareness is right understanding, you're aware of the way things are. You know the in-breath feels this way, you know the out-breath feels this way. That's right understanding. And I bring into that the, the, the capacity to reflect and observe. I bring in the Buddhist teachings, then I have the combination of experiential or existential or present right understanding and the intellectual right understanding. So the teaching says that that which begins ends. Now, as a, as a philosophical or, a, or an obvious thing, it's just a tautology. It's true, sure, that which begins ends. And if you just leave it like that, it's just an idea or a thought. But if you bring that into your present experience and say you start to uh, experience, um, let's say, uh, you're critical about something. You're critical about, you know, one of, the, one of the family members isn't washing the dishes as much as they should do, or I'm doing all the work, they're not doing the work. You, get, you become, say, judgmental. And that's a perception that has begun. Now, if you have enough mindfulness to know, I know that I know, I know this feeling, and you put into that 
rashes has a nature to begin, has a nature to end, or it's uncertain, or it's unreliable, what that does to your mind, it puts you in the observer position rather than being taken by the thoughts, being driven by the thoughts and believing in the thoughts in a kind of egotistical way. So by saying it's uncertain, you get distance in space around this judging. Not that the judging's wrong, huh? but a lot of our perceptions, like judgment or self-judgment or whatever, are just attitudes and habits. And these attitudes and habits, when they're informed with ignorance, cause us suffering. So the idea in, in Buddhist awareness practice is that how can I get more space around the way the mind moves, and how can I move back into the space and silence of the mind rather than be caught up into the thoughts and objective emotions and attitudes that I get caught up into. So Lopar Chah's suggestion constantly bring up the perception, the perception of uncertainty. So my mind starts to worry about something, uncertain. Now, you're not saying I shouldn't worry, and you're not saying there is no problem. Yeah, life is uncertain. But by saying it's uncertain, you, you get this distance and real mindfulness that this feeling of uncertainty, this perception of uncertainty, this perception of worry of the future um, that I'm thinking about, this worrying sense of self, is uncertain. It's not permanent. It's unreliable, unreliable. So all of a sudden you have a bit of space and silence around this attitude. And that attitude can be very habitual. It just comes up again and again. And so let's think about perceptions, how perceptions work. Let's say you, let's say you, 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 run, a, you run a business and you have someone uh, in the office who used to be a really good worker and all of a sudden the person's very slow, comes late, uh, seems to be not interested, and you have the perception that they're lazy. That's your perception, lazy. And then someone says to you, actually, this lady's uh, 10-year-old child died of cancer last week. All of a sudden, your perception changes. Now, oh, it's the same person, same kind of slowness, but now your understanding of the person is different than it was before. And that's perception, isn't it? And then from that perception, because it's more accurate, you can function more accurately. Right? And so the, the, what, the, what the, the teaching on impermanence or uncertainty is an attempt to really uh, get us to the place of witnessing how things change and not being caught in the habits of, of thought and the judgments that seem so very, very certain. Now, some of you who have done retreats, you know, when I, when I talk about the life of the Buddha, how the Buddha dealt with uncertainty. We have the um, allegorical story of the Buddha being the prince and being very secure and being very gifted and, and being cared for and being talented and good-looking. He's got all the worldly things that he could imagine or want, and yet, and yet he has doubts. And so, as we know, he's taken to the market China, the charioteer, takes them. Very kind of allegorical story. And for the first time in his life, he sees a sick person. Now, I can't believe that he never saw a sick person in real life, but 
what that is is a kind of allegory for when we finally see that sickness is our lot. We all get sick, and young people don't usually think about that so much. When you're my age, you see it more, uh, peers dying or, or whatever. So this insight arose in the Buddha that, ah, I am not beyond sickness. How can you go beyond sickness? So he saw the insecurity of being physically incarnate and the possibility of being sick. I mean, that's, that's a real test of your sense of security when you bring that up. And then the second vision, he goes into the marketplace another day and he sees an old person, a really, really old, and the, and the description is a very ancient person, bent over with age and, and thin and barely walking and, and quite a lot of suffering. And the Buddha has the same realization, I am not beyond aging. So he sees the insecurity in physical form. And then, of course, the third uh, incident is he goes into the marketplace with China and for the first time he sees a dead person. Never seen that before. We know the story. But and, and, and so all of a sudden he awakens, wow, I am not beyond dying. Now that's interesting. No amount of insurance can get you beyond dying. You can take out life insurance, but you won't live forever. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> Your relatives will get the money. So how can you take out insurance for death? Huh? What are you going to do? So the Buddhist question, if, you, if we're thinking about security and safety and, and certainty, it was the ultimate question. Is there anything that is beyond dying? That was his question. And you can see how any amount of worldly uh, certainty is always fraught. It's always difficult that way. It's never certain. It's uncertain. So the question that Ajahn Chah uh, asks us to put to our experience on it's uncertain, it's uncertain, it's uncertain, so that we don't grasp the experience of consciousness, and of, of changing consciousness, of, of, of experiential consciousness, of, of sense consciousness, so that we don't grasp that. And as we don't grasp it, we see that behind or within all experience, there's a deep silence. There's a deep stillness, which is not... Um, subject to the changing nature of sense experience. It's unchanging. It's asankata. So uh, that, the, so the fourth message that he gets, or the fourth insight or um, vision that he say has, is again the fourth time he goes to the market. And sometimes people forget that there, were, that there was this fourth insight that he had. He sees a sadhu. And the sadhu is meditating. And he asks Chana, what's that guy doing? And Shana says, oh, he's a, he's, a, he's a yogi, he's a sadhu, and he's seeking the deathless. So this is what the Buddha was interested in. There is such a thing, and this is the gift of Indian uh, philosophy and Indian uh, culture, is they had this idea, and it must have been through experience in the culture, that there is a transcendent realization that is not born and does not die. Hmm? We call it sometimes Nibbana, or sometimes the uncreated, uh, the unformed, the unoriginated. We call it the island, the refuge, safety, peace. We call it supreme happiness. When you call it supreme happiness, that's difficult because then you think it's a sense experience. Huh? But it's not unhappy, that's for sure. Right? So there's all this interesting language around it, but the way the Buddha says that, and, and he does realize it now, so his search is fruitful. 
So for me, that's very important in terms of, of why the teaching on uncertainty and, and why the teaching on the certain. There is something certain. Now, if you, if you, if you took Buddhism, if you took a part of Buddhism that everything is uncertain, well, what about the Buddha's realization? What about Nirvana? What about the unconditioned, uncreated? And Buddhists will do that inadvertently and say, everything's changing. No, no, not quite. That which has the nature to arise has the nature to cease. Now, that's not being just pedantic and playing with words. It's saying, don't look for that which is certain or constant in that which is changing. Simple enough, right? So if there is something that's unchanging, uncreated, unoriginated, what might that be? Well then, as we know, the teaching goes through uh, a listing of the sense experiences that we have. Again and again we hear that, that sound is impermanent, sight is impermanent, bodily feeling is impermanent, smell is impermanent, taste is impermanent, mental formations are permanent, all the objects of, of, of our lives, our, our families and so on, they are unsure. Now, that does not mean they're bad, we don't reject them, and that does not mean that we don't take care of them. So we still take out insurance, and we still love our kids as much as we can, and we still give to them, and so on and so forth. So that's the worldly part. Dana, sila, social responsibility, familial responsibility. That gives us purpose, that gives us joy. So it's not a negation of, of our usual life. Some, some, some people who don't understand uh, Buddhism from outside Buddhist uh, context, they, they think the Buddhists are kind of nihilistic teaching, where there's, you know, there's nothing. Not true, not true. It's just that the, the teaching is pointing to the fact that you can certainly have beauty in life, but beauty is uncertain. And because it's uncertain, it's unsatisfactory in the sense that if you want to find the certain, don't look for it in beauty. So be grateful for beauty, be grateful for harmony, be grateful for good health, but when it changes, well, that's who it's supposed to be. Beauty is supposed to change. Perception of beauty. So you start to bring up this perception or this way of looking, oh, this is uncertain. And you have to do it, actually, not just believe in it, you have to do it constantly. This is what Lumpur Shah was encouraging. So I personally, I, as the question is asking sort of, Personally, how I use, I use this? Well, um, let's say, let's say, I'm, I, let's say I'm doing something difficult, and my mind says, "This is really difficult. I can't do this." And then I say, "Uncertain." That brings me back from the kind of finality and absoluteness of this is very difficult. I can't do it. So, well, this is difficult. Well, maybe I can do it. It takes me away from the kind of sense of permanence around that particular perception. Or, th this person is bad, uncertain. This person is good, uncertain. Now, they may be bad in some moral way, or they may be good in some moral way, but that always gives me a distance to notice that is a perception. Is it true? I can t check it out. Um, the, the story I often tell is that uh, many of you might have heard this story, but like we were in Hampstead Vihara, and we had a, a man who wanted to live at Chithurst, the monastery we were starting, the land we had purchased, and we were about to move there. 
and there was a, a, a fellow staying with us that wanted to come, and I was unsure about whether he'd fit into the community. So I asked Ajahn Chah, I said, this fellow, and Ajahn Chah was in the Vihara in London too, and I asked him, he said, so what do you think of this fellow? And Ajahn Chah, what did he say? Uncertain. <laughs> now I thought the great master knows. You know, he's got insights, and he sees people, and he's seen him. He can tell me the answer. Uncertain. Now it's also uncertain because the way we respond to people creates people. You know, if I'm, if I'm unkind to someone, they'll be unkind to me, and I'll say to you, that person's really unkind. Uncertain. And then you're kind to that person, that person's kind to you back. You say, well, it's a different person. Uncertain. It's a different perception. So I think the real nub of this is, is you want to bring your, your, your mind to a sense of you know that you know. You know this moment is like it is. And then non-grasping is to see the arising and ceasing things. And once you get into that, then there's the flow of dharma, the flow of experience, but you begin to see that within experience, there is something constant. And, your, and this, from that question, my mind began to then question, well, wait a minute, Where is, is, is there something that's certain? So that's the kind of inquiry that helped me to look at my experience. So then I said, okay, if the teaching says that which arises ceases is uncertain, and my Lopar Sumedha will constantly stress there is the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, Nibban. I constantly say that. You remind me of that. He says, not just your emotions are your double. There is stability. There is peace. That's a possibility. I said, well, where is it? My mind's such a mess. Where is that? And he said, well, just be the knowing. It's in the awareness itself. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, okay, but I, I have all this anger and fear. My man. Uncertain. So my teachers, Lopo Sameda, Lopo Cha, they began to just encourage me um, that an anger arose and passed away. Oh, and it stayed for a while. I felt this way. So the encouragement in the awareness practice was not to be a different person, not to become another kind of person, but to know change. Now, sometimes the, 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 the feelings that we have are very powerful. It's very hard to endure them. But when you bring up the perception this will change, then the seeding permanence of it, because sometimes our, our emotional world can seem very solid and permanent and, and intractable, can't it? You know, fears and worries about our kids and worries about our health, they can seem so very powerful. They are powerful. But once you put in language perception, perceptions, uh, not just a thought, but this is uncertain or unreliable, this is changing, and then you, 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 you bring your mind to a sense of attention. Is it permanent? Is this permanent? And by observing that in any emotion, any thought, any feeling, any structure is changing, you begin to intuit yeah, that, that knowing, that's the gateway to the unchanging. That's the gateway to peace. Hmm? You begin to intuit that because you're constantly doing this. You're doing, rather than getting caught up, like, let's, let's say, uh, you, you do something which, which is unpleasant or, or uh, you do something which is a bit foolish or whatever, and then you feel regret. And then you start to think, I'm a terrible person, uncertain. No, I'm a terrible, uncertain. And all of a sudden you see that that very idea of being a terrible person arose and passed away, arose and passed away because of conditions. 
when I said this, they got that. And you start to see that it's not you, a personal entity, that's doing all this. It's just cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. You can put into it good causes for good effects, but you begin to see that that, that movement, behind that movement, is the unchanging through the knowing. So you start to see what refuge in Buddha is. The refuge in Buddha can be a, um, a cultural thing that we do. So we, Bhutang Sangachami and so on, Damang Sangachami. But what is it as a kind of experiential and existential thing? What would, what would refuge mean? Then it would mean that I know Dharma, not knowing in terms of thought, but knowing in terms of, it's like this. The Dharma is like this. This experience is like this. And that is so close to us. It's so obvious that we miss it. We go trying to find Dharma or trying to find Buddha or trying to find peace. And that's why we are so adamant or so, let us say, um, that's why we are asked to really carefully consider Tanha. Now, Tanha in, in Buddhism means it's translated as craving, but as you know, there is desire which is good, and desire which is, brings wrong results. And so the desire to be peaceful is a good thing, isn't it? The desire to help your family is a good thing. So Tanya is referring to uh, a craving in the mind which is not conjoined with, with, with wisdom, let us say. So the basic craving that we have is to find the perfect happy experience. And all experience is uncertain. And until we see that, we're always looking outside in our emotions, in our families, and so on, to get the perfect kind of balanced experience. And when it changes, we forget uncertainty and we're disappointed. So we move from disappointment to inspiration, disappointment to inspiration. And that movement, we don't see that disappointment conditions inspiration, conditions disappointment. That's the way it works. So when we start to see that, we feel very inspired by something. We've been through this cycle a hundred times. All of a sudden, Dharma comes up and we say, it's uncertain. Now you still feel inspired, but you see that it's not a permanent reality. It will change. And what does change to being disappointing, you don't blame. You don't feel like your practice has gone down the tube. You say to the disappointment, uncertain. And then you start to have upeka. You still feel inspired, you still feel disappointed, but it's no big deal. It's not a big deal because what's bigger in your own consciousness and in your own practice and in your own perceptions, I would say, in your own perceptions, there's the idea of uncertainty because you've practiced with it. You've actually um, employed it as a way of looking at experience. So in any, any situation where you believe in its permanence, you'll see that you either go high or low. Um, now, all of us go through these kind of cycles, and as we mature, we become more peaceful, but hopefully we don't become more cynical. And you can see how a person would feel inspired, then be disappointed, feel inspired, disappointed, feel inspired, disappointed, and it becomes cynical. And so it's just a rotten world anyway. But that's not peace. That's another ego position. It's Buddhism is terrible. You know, all they talk about is change. It's so depressing. Um, that's more thought. But what 
what this perception of change, it's not negating or saying inspiration is wrong, it's just saying it's limited. It's a limited, it's a sankara, it's a construct. So enjoy it, great, do something with the inspiration, but make something, go, go to something which is more deeper. And so you begin to contemplate what is unchanging. So as you feel inspiration, you say, yeah, that's, well, what's unchanging? And then your mind starts to feel doubt, what's unchanging? Your mind hears sound, what's unchanging? Your mind feels, your body feels pain, what's unchanging? And you begin to combine the practice of uncertainty with the practice of contemplating unchanging. What is that? Where is that? And you, the only thing you get to is the abandonment of craving, because craving is always seeking the uncertain. You get it, you lose it, you get it, you lose it, you get it, you lose it. Um, you start to abandon that strategy of following tanha, and you come back to an interesting question, well, what's unchanging? Now, obviously, you need a lot of presence of mind for this. You know, if you're really upset and confused and, and, and so on, you need a lot of subtlety. You need to meditate. But I think we should remember that the Buddhist uh, own search was for that certainty. It was for the certainty of something inward rather than something outward. And that he was victorious. And that his teaching came from that insight, from that realization. Right? That's why he taught. So then, if, you, if, you, if he's teaching the, the practice of liberation from uncertainty, yeah, why did he teach what he taught? Well, he taught the Four Noble Truths because when we're suffering, you know, we're attached to craving, which is always involved in the uncertain world. So when we look at suffering and we regard it, oh, suffering, it feels like this, it's uncertain, we come back to, I know that I know. I know what I feel. I don't feel uncertain, I feel doubt, or I feel pain, or I feel upset. It's uncertain. So we come back home all the time. And tanha will go out. So tanha will go out. It's your fault. It's their fault. It shouldn't be like this. And so on and so forth. And then the mind coming in is, oh, this is angry. It feels like this. But it's uncertain. Not me, not mine. Uncertain, not me, not mine. Like a mantra, but the mantra isn't just mouthing it. You're not just being a kind of good Buddhist, but you actually have to bring up the perception. Just as in the example I gave of the person in the office being seen as being lazy maybe because they're slow, and then you're told that the person's child has died of cancer, your perception has actually changed, right? It's not just an idea about people having cancer suffering. It's the same kind of transformation we're trying to effect by bringing up a, 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 a dharma. You know, it's true. It's not untrue. It's not a philosophy. But we're trying to apply it to things that we get attached to that, that seem so permanent and so real and so fixed. So say in families with husband and wife, sometimes you find, I, I, because I think everyone's locked down, you're kind of getting to know each other again. I don't know. But maybe, you know, there's a kind of perception that she is this way or he is that way. And why is he this way? And then when that perception comes up, it can be so inbuilt in the mind. It can be so conditioned in the mind. Or parents for children and children for parents. And so if you can see that perception of the person, you're not saying it's right or wrong. You say it's uncertain. And then you're back into silence, into peace, where you can respond well. But if you don't do that, sometimes... 
human communication just becomes a kind of like two automatic um, robots. You say this, I react like that. I react like this, you, you react like that. It's bang, 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 bang. It's like a pinball game. And there's no sati, there's no awareness, there's no originality, there's no, no uh, vibrancy. And it's not demanding that you be different and not have these perceptions, just awakening to it. That's a perception, my name, it's uncertain. A very interesting, it's a very interesting thing to do. The beauty of this is it's, it's, not, it's not asking you to become anything. So it's not a function of tanha, but it's asking you to remember something. It's a remembering, isn't it? So remembering is like, let's say if you're, if you're um, let's say you've, you've got company coming and you're, you're chopping vegetables, right? And, you, and you've got a lot of vegetables to chop, carrots and celery and you know, bang, 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 bang. You're very careful or you lose your finger. Unless you have a dull knife, in which case you should bruise your finger. But you're careful, aren't you? You remember that you're chopping vegetables. Your mind might start to think about tomorrow. Wait, wait, wait. wait. If you don't, you have to put a band-aid on your finger. So that, that's remembering, isn't it? It's not, you don't become aware. You remember to be aware to chop the veggies. In the same way, you don't become aware. You don't say to yourself, I must be more aware. No, you're just more aware. It's not something you do tomorrow. I mean, you can make the suggestion, try to be more present, try to be more aware, I know that I know. But it's something you're recollecting or remembering, and then within that recollection, you're trying to bring up, it's uncertain, just try it out, see how it works. Eh? Hopefully it doesn't bring you to worry, because that's not the point. Because if it brings you to worry, you know, it's uncertain. So you deal the best you can, with, with making it a certain world. So, like, here, um, we, we, we plan for winter. We get firewood in. And, and we do repairs on our machinery. And we, uh, we make sure that the, the monks have medicines that they need, and, and so on and so forth. So, without dismissing all that, without dismissing of that, we're also interested in, in the Buddha's realization that 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 he went beyond dying. I have not gone beyond dying, I have not gone beyond aging, I have not gone beyond sickness. That's what we often chant. I am of nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. I have nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I have nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. And the Buddha did. He did go beyond that. And you think, wow. And does that mean he floated up to heaven? No, because he was there. He was there with everyone else. For 45 years, he... Trained monks, he had difficult monks, good monks, bad monks. Trained nuns, he had lay people, he had all the worldly. Um, you imagine how many people came to see him? So he wasn't abstracted in some kind of a weird way. He was very present, very compassionate, very skillful in the world, in the world of uncertainty. But he had found certainty in his own heart, in his own mind, by noticing that that which has a nature to arise has, has a nature to cease. Remember the, four, the, uh, the Dhammachaka Sutta, the first sutta? Uh, kundanya at the end of it. Anya Kundanya. He knows. What does he know? That has, that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease. Now if you just take that as a, as a philosophical principle, that's what Kundanya knows, great. But if you take it into your heart, into what you're experiencing, I suggest that it constantly bring you back to silence, to that which is unchanging. And in the beginning it's not much. It's just a kind of silence or... Not much, but you have to trust in it. Trust in it, and, and then the silence becomes really vast and deep. In the beginning, it just seems like nothing. To be very, very patient, 
and trusting in that, and that's what Ajahn Chah would say, just keep doing it, keep doing it, it's uncertain, it's uncertain. And, and, and after a while I wouldn't ask him any questions because he would say it's uncertain. <laughs> what are you going to say, right? So those are some thoughts on that question. Uh, Bita, do you have any, any more that I could address? Lompo, would you like to take uh, some questions from the floor? Sure. If, if anyone has a question, please do so. Un unmute yourself when you want. We can take uh, maybe two questions. If you could raise your digital hand and I will unmute you. There is a digital hand button at, on your screen. If you'd like to ask a question, please raise your digital hand and we'll unmute you. No, Lompol, there are no digital hand, but um, someone has typed a question uh, just a while ago and it says, Bante? How does one maintain being in observant mode without being judgmental? Because one still can be very opinionated while being observant. So how exactly does one practice wise attention while being in the mindful mode? Well, mindfulness has to include everything, including being judgmental. So oftentimes we idealize what mindfulness is. So the, the kind of misconception that might arise for people is that mindfulness means you never feel anything negative, or mindfulness means you don't have any uh, unpleasant habits, or, or mindfulness means you never get upset, or, and so on and so forth. But that's not mindfulness, that's idealism. And then when you attach to those ideals, you become um, even more confused, because you don't really know, you don't come to the position, I know that I know, you quickly go to the idea that knowing means never having a judgmental mind in this case. So you have to kind of reset your ideas of what mindfulness is or awareness and say mindfulness includes everything. So you take Lumpur Tomatoes' beautiful phrases, it's like this and it all belongs. Now that all belonging isn't a moral statement, right? It's not about morality, so if you want to hurt someone, no, that, you can't do that. You live a moral life. But this is more about uh, our experience as human beings, that in the experience of being human, you can have devilish thoughts or beatific thoughts. You can think really cruel things or really kind things. And once you get the idea that awareness accepts everything, but only acts on the, on the wholesome and is patient with the unwholesome, then you, you start to say, okay, judging mind, I'm going to just, I'm going to try to go to the perception of judgment when it comes up. Now that's important. You go right to the perception of judgment as an object. And what does that mean? Well, when you're, when the attitudes and habits of judgment come into consciousness, then they drive your thinking mind, correct? And then it's not just a a perception of that person is not good or not adequate or whatever, it is now driven by thought. 
That person shouldn't be that way, and they shouldn't be that way. And then that thought is replaced, I shouldn't be that way, I shouldn't be that way. Yeah, yeah, but they are that way. And so the whole thing is just driven by, I thought, me, them, me, them, me, them. So we need to kind of back up and realize judgment is there, and go right to the perception and ask yourself, well, what's judgment really feel like? You see? So you're not rejecting judgment, but you're also not just indulging in it or indulging in the suppression of it. You're going right to the perception of, well, what does judgment feel like? Or where is it in the mind? Or how is it in the mind? Now, when you, when you do that, it usually dissolves. Poof. Right? If it's very powerful, then it'll be in your body as an emotional reaction. But that's usually not judgment. That's usually anger or something like that. But judgment is usually just a sort of mental habit. And a mental habit comes up, if you go right to the perception of judgment, what is it like? Like, like you can have the perception of cold, say something more easy. Uh, let's say, like, tonight it's going to go down to six degrees. Um, we move a lot in temperature. What was it? This week it's been 30, 30 degrees in the daytime. Tonight it'll go down to six. Crazy, huh? So when I go out tomorrow morning, uh, I'll forget to put a coat on or something, and then I'll feel cold. Now, cold is a perception. It's also a feeling. It's cold. But I can go right to that feeling. Cold is like this. I can still get a sweater. But now I know it. I know it just as it is. Cold feels this way. Now, that, it's more difficult to do it with a mental state. Same principle. So you, you find that you know, you're really judgmental about someone. Don't be afraid of it. It's not you. Um, but just say uncertain. Uncertain, that judgment. And then go right to it. Hey, what's the perception of judgment? What's it really like? And you'll find it will vanish. And the sense of self will vanish. It'll just be knowing. And then it'll come up again. And then it'll vanish. And, and that vanishing or ending is what we mean sometimes by nirodo or cessation. Now, it doesn't seem like much. It just seems like a gap between thoughts. And, and it's in that gap that you have to kind of investigate and penetrate and look and allow, allow the mind to be in that space of nothing, having nothing to do. So when I'm caught, like let's say judgment, a judging attitude pervades or, or comes up a lot, the problem there, not only the judgment that it's unpleasant and the idealism that I shouldn't have the judgment, my mind is preoccupied with an object, with a sankara, with a thought. And as long as I'm preoccupied with a condition, I cannot realize the unconditioned. So preoccupation, right, is a problem we have with sense consciousness because we're always thinking or looking or doing. And it can be fun, but if we're interested in the unconditioned, we have to be available to it. And how can we be available? We can know it as change. So when I can say to judgment, uncertain, and just wait, then I'm available. But if I am always caught up in fighting the judging mind, I'm not really mindful. I'm not mindful of my attitudes of aversion towards the judging mind. So I don't really know judgment as judgment. I have become someone who should not be judgmental. I'm not mindful. How could I be judgmental? But that's not, you're not really mindful. You're just judgmental of the judgment. Hmm? You see what I mean? So this is difficult. It's easy to say, but the more you can just go directly to the perception of judgment or whatever it is, or self-hatred or, or, or fantasizing, whatever, you go right to it, 
uncertain and wait, the mind starts to touch that silence. It starts to know the silence. It starts to be that silence, I would say. But in the beginning, it's nothing. It does not seem like much. But what you can notice is the sense of a person ceasing. The sense of a person is thought. That's all it is. But it's powerful thought. It's driven by habits and attitudes and beliefs and so on. So when you go right to like something like judgment, and, and say it's uncertain, you'll notice that thoughts will stop, and in the stopping of thoughts, the sense of me as a person doing something, becoming something, that falls away and there's just silence. Then you're available. Then you're available to the inner silence, to the unconditioned, the uncreated, then originated. And then your mind starts to judge again. Yeah, but they really, you know, they really they shouldn't be that way. And then uncertain. And that brings you back to the presence again. I know that I know. And there's nothing. And then craving keeps wanting to grab something. And you say it again. Uncertain, uncertain. This is what practice is. Practice is really quite... It's tedious, you know, because these, these attitudes and habits are so, so pernicious and so boring sometimes. They just keep coming. You say, well, shut up. As you say to your mind, I don't want you anymore. And you distract a little bit, but it's still there. And they say, no, no, you can be there. You can be there as, as much as you want, judgment. I know you, judgment. Judgment feels this way. Uncertain. Not me, not mine. And so the, the Anicca Dukkha phraseology is bringing a perception that frees the mind from attachment to these changing things and makes it available to the unconditioned, to the peace of the mind. Now that doesn't mean you can't use thoughts. So if, you're, if you are the manager of an office and you, you, and you see that the person is truly incompetent and they're actually physically okay, you know, there's nothing, and they just, they just don't have the skills for the job, then that judging mind is your job. And you might have to say, I'm sorry, I can't keep you on because I need, I need a better person for that position. I can't afford to keep you on. That's fine. So judgment, there's nothing wrong with judgment, right? Um, and we need it. If we didn't have judgment, how could you ever run your office or, 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 or make judgments about who's a good plumber or a good doctor or, or whatever, right? So it's not the judgment is wrong, it's when our, our, our attention is just preoccupied with judging in an egotistical way, with a sense of self. And then we come back with the self-judgment. I shouldn't be like that. And that's not really uh, functional, useful judging. Which, you know, which car should I buy? Or uh, where's a better store to go to? Or where is a safer place to go shopping? These are judgments. They're good, right? There's nothing wrong with them. It's when the mind is just driven by these attitudes and perceptions uh, of self that is so tiring and exhausting. And it's a preoccupation. So if I have to make a judgment about something, I make the judgment, make the choice, go for it and do it. My mind isn't lingering with that. It's not just preoccupied with it. It's this kind of preoccupation and of haunting thoughts and emotions that, that is so... Um, it takes us away from peace, obviously. And we can't find peace by getting rid of it, because then we're still preoccupied with it. So it's not a matter of getting rid of it, it's a matter of knowing it. And that's where you get the ideas of kindness and compassion in Buddhism. Not, not just between you and I, but it's that, that awareness, when it's imbued with kindness and acceptance, when it has that heart quality, then it can feel judgment coming and going. 
it can feel anger coming and going. You know, you don't, you don't have to be someone who never feels anger. No, anger comes and goes. But the openness of awareness has this sense of inclusivity, of acceptance. It's a broad, broad kind of awareness where our questioner with the mindfulness, she could see the mindfulness isn't broad enough to accept judgment. The mindfulness uh, has the perception, the person probably has, is that mindfulness excludes the judging mind. But it doesn't. It has to include everything. But it doesn't have to attach to it. So it's attachment is the problem rather than the judgment. And attachment comes about through thinking, through wrong thinking. Peter. Very good, Lampo. Paul, um, do you still have time for just one last question? More than happy. Right, I'm going to unmute uh, Drewy. Please. Drewy? Drewy Baringa? Please ask his question. Let's see, can you, can you hear me? Yes, we can. I can. Um, hello, Longpour, and thank you for your reflections. Um, I had a very good sit a, a couple nights ago. I got to a very still place um, where uh, you know the, the breath calmed down and some joy, joy was beginning to arise, and there was a lot of stillness. And then it became kind of so refined that uh, I almost got stuck and didn't know where to go. The breath is very fine. I couldn't really focus. It's like mindfulness wasn't maybe refined enough to focus on this, the fine breath. And I wasn't sure whether I should focus on the, the joy emotion or sensation or just keep the breath going or focus on the stillness. Um, I just wanted to get some strategies around that. Okay. Your sound is a bit broken up, but I'll give it a go, huh? And see if the answer fits. Um, so I would, I, would, I would recommend sometimes not focusing, first of all, not choosing an object, but just being the witness to change. That's a very good, it's good to learn how to focus, good to just also no change. So then, then the idea of, because sometimes with focus is there is a sense of, control and refinement, but then there's a need to be the, the doer. I am doing something to control and focus. Not bad, but then a sense of a doer, an individual, can keep you kind of locked into a, into a um, it's like a horse in a stall sometimes. Your mind is focused on something, it's calm, but you're, you're always kind of stuck in calm, and a horse can't run away. With, Sometimes if you just open awareness to the way things are and, and see that it doesn't really need to focus. The focus that is really interesting is present moment awareness. That's why we use objects, uh, our focus, to bring ourselves to present moment awareness. But the danger of that is we get, re we get attached to refinement. We love refinement. We love peace, we love bliss, and we're always looking for it. And many people have got some kind of peace in meditation, then lost it, and then looked for it for years, right? But those are still experiences. They came and they went. And our, our search is for the unchanging, yeah? So sometimes it's a, it's a kind of a danger 
in meditation that you can get, kind of get good at refining and, and, and making focus and getting very, very still. Uh, but I would ask, is, is that stillness, how, what happens afterwards? Is it, is it a stillness which integrates into ordinary life where you're not bothered, you have upeka, or is it a stillness which is very much dependent on conditions? One very good way to test that is if you're getting the mind very, very still and there's some interruption to your meditation, does that make you annoyed? If it makes you annoyed, then you're attached to the refinement. If, you're, if your stillness is one that is based on present moment awareness, no matter what, then there can be no interruption, right? So that's a good one to, to, to look at. Also, I would say your question is really uh, like, again, I, I didn't hear it clearly, so please excuse me, but it seems to me it was also the, one of the great problems that we have is with doubt. So, you know, we have a question that comes up, should, it, you know, should I refine it more or should I open it more? And we don't see that the mind now is stuck in, in doubt. That's the, that's the particular um, object that it's, it's attached to, doubt. And, and, and so we present a question to the mind, should I do this or shouldn't I do this? So ar- doubt arises, we don't see doubt as an object, we become the subject. We don't see that it is a sankara or a condition, because it's very refined. Like anger is much easier to see. You see anger, oh I'm angry and so on. But doubt is very, very, and, and, and most of us are, are intellectually trained. We like to think, we like to analyze, we like to solve problems. So sometimes we just make problems for ourselves. We bring out, like, oh, you know, is it the refinement, or where am I going? And we don't see that if I just see doubt as doubt, as an object, I'm back with the awareness. It's uncertain, it begins and it ends. But I take it's uncertain, I just keep thinking it. And I create more doubt, more thought, more doubt, more thought. It's a very common problem in meditation, problem or hindrance, say, that arises. And also it's, it's a fetter because the, you cannot figure out awareness with the intellect, can you? You just have to surrender to awareness. This is the way it is now. Morally, you live a good life. You don't surrender to bad emotions. Socially, you care for your family, sure. But in this kind of existential way, when we're looking at the flow of consciousness, um, you have to kind of have trust and awareness. Now, the intellect is not a trusting place. It's a doubting place. It questions, it wants answers, it wants solutions. And good, you have, a, you, know, you have a doubt about work and you solve it by thinking. So what happens in meditation quite often is that same mind which likes to solve problems, which you use to, to earn your daily bread, right? That same mind comes up and creates a problem. Should I be more refined, or should I do this, or should I do that? How should I meditate? And there is no problem, right? There is just doubt, because awareness knows doubt. There's no real problem. But you think there is a problem, you start thinking, and then you get an answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, and you're stuck in intellect, stuck in doubt. But when you know doubt is doubt, then you can use doubt. Okay, what if I, what if I didn't do the breath? What if I just listened to the monk and just tried doing electroshocks awareness? What would that be like? So you can use doubt, right? And then do it as an experiment. Or you can use doubt like I was using it for, well, what's uncreated? Now that's not an intellectual question. Well, what's uncreated is this, this, and that. It's not, I'm not looking for an answer. I'm actually using doubt to make the mind quite bright. And that's interesting. How you use intellect 
to make the mind aware, but you go beyond intellect. So when I say to myself, um, what's uncreated? What's, what's not moving? What's unchanging? That brings me to silence, because thought is changing. So you can use doubt that way. So again, there's nothing wrong with doubt, but the attachment to doubt is a very common uh, difficulty in, 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 in meditation. So I would say two things around the answer. Is one, um, investigate your practice, and, and do, are you perceiving practice as being a continual refinement of experience? And then contemplate, well, does, is, does, is, is refinement of experience permanent? Or is it dependent on causes and conditions? If it is, how can I use refinement to make myself more aware of change and not get attached to stuff? Or am I just thinking that I do more retreats, I do more refinement, I need more refinement? Is it just a continual refining process with no purpose to it? The purpose of calming the mind is to look at attachment and letting go of attachment, of letting go of craving. It's not an end in itself. Right? It's not an end in itself. Same with actually with the metta bhavana. Metta bhavana is not the goal. It's the method. It's the method that you use, right? It's the way you do it. Asila is not the goal. It's the method. Social responsibility, nonviolence, they're all the methods. It's not the goal. So they're, they're the foundations and we do them. We do them seriously. But then the, the ultimate question, you know, to me, would be, okay, Who's the doer? Who's doing all this? And then the mind goes silent, or what's uncreated? So coming to that silence is not a refinement by holding an object. If I hold an object long enough and I have the capacity to hold that, yeah, I can make the mind very, very still. But that stillness is dependent on the object, which would be great. Like if you're a musician, you, you, you know how to concentrate. If you're a mathematician, you know how to concentrate. Great. Good stuff, and it can make your mind very, very still. But that stillness is dependent. It's caused. The stillness that the Buddha realized, or the, the, the unconditioned, was not caused. It's always there. It's always available. So what we have to do is we have to be available and watchful. And usually we're not available because we're thinking, we're planning, and, and, and our, our attention is kind of caught up with the things of life. We need to be. We need to do stuff. We can't do this all the time. But I think if you're in lockdown, it's a great time to sort of explore, to try it out. How's that, Vita? Um, wonderful. Uh, I'm aware it's very late for you uh, this evening. It's what? I'm aware it's late for you now this evening. Shall we close the session now and let you rest? Okay, so do you want to do some chanting? This is what should be done? Uh, yes, we will say sadhu first and then uh, we would. Uh, okay. Yeah. Please. Thank you. Uh, let's all say three sadhus together. Handamayam ovadatamagatayo sadhu karam kadamase. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, 
straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, and peaceful in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, Spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, upwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection, this is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world.